Amen. You can be seated. Well, this morning, as we just read the passage, it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Today, we continue this sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew called King and Kingdom. And we have seen the inauguration of Jesus in his life and his ministry as he is to come to declare that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, that the King is here, and that God's kingdom is And his ministry and his systems, his policies and procedures, his economy is very different than that of a fallen people and of a fallen world. And so this is where we see Jesus is now on top of a a mountain, a small mountain, the Sermon of the Mount or Sermon on the Mount is what we typically call this. And Jesus' large crowds are now following after him and he turns, he sits down and though there are multiples that are listening to him, Jesus begins to speak directly into his very disciples, those who follow after him. And he begins to explain what this kingdom is like and what the citizens of his kingdom, that if they have been saved by him, then they're citizens in this kingdom. And there's a way that we which we live in this present kingdom, in Jesus's way of doing things, um, while the world is still broken. So Jesus begins through the Sermon on the Mount to lay the foundations the, the very fundamentals of what the rest of his life and ministry will reflect, but also that of our lives as well. Spirituality, religion, have become simply an external activity uh, that these people believed. But yet Jesus had a very opposing view to this idea. The gospel, according to Jesus, um, is a working of a Holy Spirit from within inside of a person that has external fruit. But for these people, especially the Jews and even pagan religions, viewed the exact opposite. You did something in hopes of it changing your heart, or you did something in hopes of getting approval from God. And yet, God's approval is not found in man from their external works. It is found from the motives of their hearts, which in turn produce works. External obedience to these people was more important than their motives behind it. How many of you guys ever have heard this statement? Do it, and then eventually your heart will follow. Well, there is some, that's kind of a half truth, if that exists. Right? There are some degree, some elements of, of thought in that that does have some, some truth into it. But for the most part, that is not the gospel. See, God is, is really after our hearts. He is after our motives. Jesus is deconstructing the idea that you just do these things and you're approved by God. And yet Jesus has been showing us through these beatitudes over and over again that you are approved, not essentially by what you do, but you are approved by God. Therefore, those who are approved live. These are the things internally and externally that they live out. This is very countercultural to what was being preached and believed during this time. Jesus is constantly reminding the people of who they are. My wife reminded me this week that I have one sermon. Pretty much my sermons go like this. You're terrible. God is awesome. And that's pretty much what you get here every week because that's what we see in the scripture is over and over we have a tendency to forget who we are compared to the the majesty and the greatness of a sovereign and holy and glorious God. And so we need a weekly reminder. We need daily reminders of those very truths. That the Beatitudes, I'm going to use either some really poor English or like a rapper this morning, uh, the Beatitudes are more about who we be than anything else. The citizens of the kingdom have these truths that are their very nature. They can't help but be meek because their nature is that of Christ who is ultimate meekness. 
They can't help but have these attributes and these, these ideas and these expressions that just ooze out of our lives because their very nature has been changed. And Jesus is concerned with this. Again, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones Jr. says this quote, The Christian gospel places all its primary emphasis upon being rather than doing. The gospel puts a great weight upon our attitude than our actions. A Christian is something before he does anything. And we have to be Christian before we can act as Christians. Now that is a fundamental point. Being is more important than doing. Attitude is more significant than action. Going a step further, we can put it like this. We are not, you need to write this one down. This is tweetable. We are not meant to control our Christianity. Our Christianity is rather meant to control us. Being a good speaker, teacher, you repeat yourself, right? So let me say it again. We are not meant to control our Christianity. Our Christianity is rather meant to control us. Now, Pastor Eric, are you talking about like in the way that I vote? Yes. In the way you spend your money, yes. In the way that you raise your children, yes. We do not come to Christianity and to the scriptures with some preconceived package notion. No, brothers and sisters. We come to the scripture humbly, meek, poor in spirit, saying, this is my authority because Jesus is my authority. And Jesus lets us know how we are to live inside of his kingdom through these truths, even the ones that we don't really like or get or that are hard for us to understand. Christianity is meant to control us, not us control Christianity. So we must be constantly asking the question, man, where is that in the scriptures? Where is that in the life of Jesus? Where is that in the teachings of of the scripture. This is one of the formative truths of what it means to be a Christian. Not what we do, but who we are. Knowing if our nature has truly been changed, then so will be our lifestyles. So before you go quoting me, saying, well, our pastor says, man, all you have to do is believe and it doesn't matter the way that you live. That's not what I'm saying. All right. Those whom have truly been saved by the sovereign will of sovereign grace in people's lives will naturally, a byproduct of those things, is be fruitful. Okay. What Jesus is saying here isn't some you know, attempt on myself to complete these beatitudes. No, he's saying approve because you've experienced these things. These, these are the lives of true believers, true followers of Jesus. They find themselves resting in these truths. So knowing who we are, we realize that our lifestyles, our motives, our heart's desires, our attitudes toward why and what we do completely change. And yet Jesus uses this word Blessed are the merciful. Approved, if we translate blessed to approved, approved are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I want you to know, uh, before we go any further, man, I hope that you will always pray for me. But man, this, this week, is, it's, it's, not, it's been a journey kind of wrestling through this. And I can ex- do an illustration to help you understand that. How many times in church... Or in your prayers, do you talk about the grace of God? Example. Lord Jesus, gracious. Lord, thank you for your grace. You've graced us with this meal. You've graced us with this home. We, if we were to count the number of times that we use the term grace in a worship service or even in a song that we sing and just church language and lingo and bad t-shirts or coffee mugs, maybe dapper classic socks with the word grace on it, I don't know. But in these sorts of experiences, man, we are all about grace, all right? And I'm not trying to belittle the grace of God this morning, but very rarely do you ever hear prayers and conversations um, that often depict the mercy of God in our lives. See, grace is easy somewhat to explain. Mercy is extremely difficult to define and is even more difficult, I would say, 
to live, and yet Jesus says this is a characteristic of a true believer. When we look at the idea of mercy this morning, mercy is having compassion or forgiveness. I've kind of got two different definitions. I think they both work throughout Scripture. The first one is this, compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or to harm. All right? So you're having compassion towards someone who you seemingly have the right to punish. All right? Somebody rear-ends you. By law, you have the right to call your insurance company. You have the, the right to call the law. You have the right to do those things. And yet, mercy would say you don't. All right? Now, I'm not saying that every time you get in a wreck, you just need to let people walk this morning. Okay, but in generally speaking, that's just an you have the right to administer punishment on someone who has done you wrong. This is one of the you're having compassion upon that type of person. That's one of the definitions that we see kind of in the world, but also in Scripture. The second one is this. It is divine empathy that seeks to relieve a person from their misery. So if kind of two different components here, one withhold punishment from someone who you have the right to punishment. The second one is a divine empathy that seeks to relieve a person from their misery. Now, when we look at this idea, we're talking about divine empathy, compassion, unselfish motives that reaches out to help someone, a wretched person, a poor person, a pitiful person. A lot of times in the Old Testament, if you've ever seen this word, uh, loving kindness, it is actually transposed and can often be the same word that we get for mercy. This is motive, love is a motive, not an action, it's not, it's not an emotion, it, it is the motive of a person's heart. Mercy is. It's love, but kindness. See, the fruits of the Spirit, are, it's hard to do if you're a man living on an island all by yourself. Typically, the fruits of the Spirit, and even this kind of mercy that we're talking about here, is found in relationships with other people. And so we see here from this that, man, you are having loving kindness. Your heart's desire is to be compassionate towards someone that you can rightfully punish. Or you're having compassion towards someone who is in complete, a, a poor, in poverty, and a, a state of being literally miserable. This is mercy. We see this a lot throughout the Old Testament. Um, the biblical mercy refers to the ability of a person to get into someone's skin. So you see someone who's struggling. You see someone who's being berated, oppressed. You see someone that is homeless or in poverty or abused. And God, I love this illustration, God allows you to, in some spiritual way, get inside of their skin to, to feel and to experience the sorrow that that person is going through. That is mercy. To be able to think their thoughts, to feel their pain. It's more than a sense of pity. Okay? It's, it's deeper than that. See, grace, the theological way that we like to use it here at church is a uh, mission in our family is, is unmerited favor, right? You did nothing to receive this grace from God. Grace covers our sin. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. So somebody comes to me and, or some zillionaire or whoever, and, and they steal $10. And instead of punishing that person, the, the person turns around and writes them a check for a million dollars. That's grace. You're getting what you do not deserve. Mercy is something different. Mercy is, yes, birth from grace, but mercy is, is God's relief of our misery caused by sin. Mercy removes the pain. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. See, grace is you get something you do not deserve. It's a gift. 
Mercy is withholding what you do deserve. You are guilty, but you're not going to get punishment. So we see these two ideas, and I'm going to kind of illustrate them for the rest of our time here this morning. One, again, understanding mercy is withholding punishment from those who have the right to punish you. Or two, is a divine empathy that seeks to, to relieve a person from their misery. Much like last week, what we said was when we started talking about meekness, the first thing that you need to understand this morning is that mercy, like meekness, is not natural, but supernatural. We get this because God is ultimately extremely merciful. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. This is a heavenly attribute that is placed into, imputed into God's people. Those whom we have saved, it is inside of you to be merciful, to not punish those whom you have the right to punish, but also that you would have a, a, a desire to seek out, to dwell with, to live with, to invite with someone into your life, into your circle of trust, who's in misery, who's in pain, who's in sorrow, who's materially poor even. Maybe they're African American, maybe they're Hispanic, no matter what, but you are trying to reach into someone's life who's experiencing great pain and got great sorrow to walk alongside of them. That too is mercy. And where does that come from? It comes from God. It is not natural to us in our humanity. It is natural to God. And because we reflect his, his glory and his goodness, we too are called to be Merciful. The second thing, which we're going to spend quite a bit of time here this morning, is this. To understand mercy, you must understand that mercy is messy. Mercy is extremely messy. A lot of times we, we talk about charity, and I'm not saying that charity is a bad thing. Charity is a good thing. But charity and mercy are not the same thing. Typically, when you think about charity, charity revolves around helping people through the raising of money. Um, mercy goes much, much deeper than you calling in or texting into the Red Cross to send them money. Should we do those things? Yes. I mean, the scripture is very clear that we should be generous and sacrificial in all of our giving, of our time, talent, and of our treasures. But Mercy is, is something much different than just raising money. Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to understand something this morning. Sometimes, even as Christians, the easiest and most celebrated thing that we can do in Christendom is to write a check. They'll celebrate you if you do that. And I'm not saying, once again, that it's bad for us to give. God calls us to give. But, but sometimes that's the easiest thing to do. Just send money and let someone else deal with the problem. Mercy calls us not just to send some cash or to just give financially to these situations, but mercy causes us to go to those people, to invite those people into our homes, to spend time with them, to walk with them through their pain, to visit with them, to teach with them, to pray with them, to allow them to literally be a part of our family, to get into the skin of their very issues. In Luke's gospel, Jesus shares a great parable reflecting this. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. So if you're in Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you go over two books in the scripture. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37, says this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? So this lawyer comes to Jesus and he's, he's wanting to know the question a lot of people ask, like, how do I get to go to heaven? How do I have eternal life? So these are 
Not bad questions. These are good questions. Verse 26, he said to him, this is Jesus, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you, or those are the questions from the lawyer. Jesus responds this way in verse 27. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. We call this the Shema. Jews prayed it several times a day. Um, Jesus kind of reiterated it and condensed all of the law of the Old Testament into that law. Love God and love people. And Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So this guy wants to know, man, how, how do I get to heaven? How do I spend eternal life with God? And Jesus looks at the man and he says, man, here's what you got to do. Two things. You got to love God with everything, every fiber of your being, your, your mental capacity, your emotional capacity, your physical capacity, everything within you must love God and do likewise, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. But the man, he questions Jesus. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I don't know about you, but when we try to find a house, we try to strategically choose who lives close to us. And we automatically just think about those next store to us. Yet Jesus is going to take this much deeper. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by him on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, that's another Jew in kind of Jewish, he had responsibility within the priesthood. When he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and, and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man and who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, when we see this story, you got this guy, I mean, he's, he's just going from town to town, place to place. He's beat up by robbers, probably left naked on the side of the road. And lo and behold, a priest, one of God's appointed men comes walking by. And let's, let's all fa face it, before we hate on the priest, what would you do? You're walking down the fountain square, you know, sipping your Spencers, your latte, and all of a sudden there's a naked dude sitting next to the fountain, beat up. I'll show you. Our temptation would, would be to walk around him. Another Jewish man, a man of religion, a man of truth, comes walking by, sees the same dude, broken, beaten, possibly naked, laying there. And what does he do? The, the scripture says he, he walks around him to get him. Now, what's interesting about this is that according to the law, that Levite and that priest didn't do anything wrong. Because what happens if you touch their blood? What happens if you, you know, they're, that person is unclean, or if they're dead and you touch them, well, according to the Jewish extreme Jewish laws here and belief system, if you, man, you're, you're unclean. You know, what does Samaritan do? We don't have time this morning to go deep into the Samaritans, but Jews hated the Samaritans. These were considered to be half-breeds people. 
They're like part Jew, part pagan, mix that together. You got a Samaritan. Jews got up every morning, prayed, Lord Jesus, thank you for not making me a Samaritan. It was major racism. Jews hated the Samaritans. They could not stand them. So when Jesus uses the Samaritan as the hero, plays into all sorts of, you know, social things that are happening. But for our sake this morning, a Samaritan walks by, sees the man, and what does he do? He has mercy upon this gentleman. He cares for this man. He takes care of his man. He bounds up his wounds. He, does he give generously? Yes. Does he give charity? Yes. But he, but he also is taking care of this man. He has compassion upon this gentleman. He takes care of him. He, he relieves him of his, minis- of his misery from the pain and sorrow and agony of being robbed. And Jesus essentially asks the question, which dude are you? Which, which gal are you? Which one showed mercy? Go and be like that guy. Even if it doesn't make logical sense, Jesus, yes. Even if it maybe goes against the laws of the land, if this is according to the gospel, if it's a gospel issue, Jesus, are, are you saying that I should do this even if this is not culturally appropriate? I mean, let's, let's all be confessional here this morning. If you're walking down any city that has, you know, a major homeless issue, have you ever walked to the other side of the street because you didn't want to be hounded by somebody? Did you ever do what I do in the mall? It's like, if you own a kiosk in a mall and you're trying to rub butter on my face or on my wife or rub my back in the middle of everybody, which I think is just really weird that malls do that. But anyway, if you're trying to do that to me, we have a rule in our household. We do not look at those people in the eye. Because if you look at them in the eye, they're going to ask you to rub your back or rub butter on your face. Try it next time you go to the mall. So, and every time Laura, she's like, you know, uh, Lot's wife, she looks up at him. I'm like, salt, all right? That's a, that's a Bible geek joke right there. I, mean, I was like, you looked at him, didn't you? All right, we have a rule. You do not look. Homeless person begging for money, asking for something. Ignore. Mercy. See, in the South, we excuse this. We have some Canadians, brothers and sisters, visiting with us. So I'm going to teach you some Southern slang this morning. In the South, when you say bless their heart, that's typically not a good thing. Or and it's an excuse. So in the South, we can see people hurting. We will see people on the side of the road, broken down, 10 kids, all right? Drive through Amish country, Mennonite, Amish person side of the road, you know, wheel off. We will drive by them slow, looking at them and say, bless their heart. We will see people in pain, and, and we mean this in the South. Like, we feel it a lot of times, Bless their hearts. Lord Jesus, send them somebody to help them. Lord Jesus, send somebody with some money to give to those people. Lord Jesus, may the Hope House new truck drive by and them get that number and be able to follow it to Hope House. Lord, help Hotel Inc., Lord Jesus, help, you know, I hope just through supernatural Holy Spirit, God, telepathically, you tell, you tell them down there at the Hotel Inc., Lord, bring them some food. And we hope that that happens. This is not what Jesus is, is telling us to do. We see starving children on television. What do we do? Oh, I can't stomach that. Click. <laughs> right? Lord, help them. Click. Jesus is, is calling his people. He's saying, man, those who have truly been saved will be merciful. And being merciful is extremely messy. It is messy to be in people's lives. You know, a lot of people think that being a pastor is glamorous until they try to do it and they begin to 
build relationships with people. And then, because a lot of our time, this is not what was me feel sorry for me. And this is what God's called me to do. I love being a pastor. I love being your pastor. But you deal with a lot of people's junk. Okay? We visit a lot of funeral homes. I've, I've preached funerals for, for babies. Okay? This, some of that stuff, it's messy. It's tough dealing with divorce and kids going rampant and alcoholism and drugs and all those sorts of things. And yet being merciful is extremely messy. You think when that good Samaritan was cleaning up his wounds that maybe he got a little blood on him? Got a little dirt on him? Yes, but compassion is not just emotion. It is compassion, godly compassion that has hands and feet to it. Mercy is not helping from a distance Mercy is, is helping up close. It's messy. It's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. It is not a life of ease. If anything, when, when, when God has called us as believers to be merciful, you're, you're inviting uh, your schedule to be quite interrupted. You're, you're inviting the ease of life to, to go away. You're inviting convenience to be removed. And yet this is the greater calling, not to be distant from people who are hurting, not to be distant from people who we have the right to be punishing but to be close. What happens when a church opens up their lives to the poor, the disabled, the abused? See, it's one thing to go help out at Hotel Inc. Or, or Hope House or to walk downtown and help these folks. It's another thing to invite them into our church and sit next to them. It's, a, it's another thing to invite them into your home. Anybody know who Spoons is? Spoons, man in Frank, uh, in Bowling Green. I don't believe he's homeless. He has a house. I think he has roommates too. <laughs> and Spoons sits next to a bar downtown close to Spencer's. And he will play the Spoons for tips. I see him like every time I'm working down there. And it's like, and I know that people have reached out to him. And, and I'm going to be really honest. He can be really annoying. He can consume you, your time. And I, and I think, man, it's one thing to have spoons down there. Like he's kind of compartmentalized downtown. What if he was sitting next to you? Is Missing Church a family that invites spoons to come be a part? Can spoons be a covenant member here? Can he come to the MC, a missional community in your house? Can he come eat dinner on a Friday night with you, with me? What happens when we become a church or a family that opens our lives to the poor, to the disabled, to the abused? It becomes messy when, when these people begin to, to come to our homes and attending our worship gatherings. Maybe they... I haven't taken a bath. Maybe they smell. Do we treat them differently? Are you more likely to have someone into your home that dresses like you, talks like you, lives like you, but very rarely have someone in your home who's maybe they're not the same skin color of you? Maybe English is not their first language. See, being merciful doesn't make sense, does it? It's extremely lavish. To not punish someone whom you have the right to punish. Man, I hate that. I do not like that. I like Old Testament, right? Eye for an eye. You get that? I mean, that's what we like. So in this definition, you've got two different aspects. One, I, I don't punish those whom I have the right to punish. The second thing is, is having mercy and compassion or empathy with action on the poor and the oppressed or even the person that's just having a bad day. We're not just talking about people that are physically poor, but we're talking about people who are miserable because of sin. 
So there's all these different layers, and we're going to continue to, as we come through the book of Matthew, to hit all of these different aspects. This is like a giant preview to where we're heading. But it, but it seems wasteful. I mean, to, to, to do some of these things, and, and we even have thrown up, I think Ben Franklin was the first person who said this, but we've quoted, quoted in church quite often, but God helps those who help themselves. That's kind of our... It's not in the Bible. God has shown us mercy. And in showing us mercy, he was doing it for someone or a group of people who could not help themselves. And so we as a church, as individuals, need to be involved in these things. We call these oftentimes within church lingo mercy ministries. And we need to be involved in mercy ministries ministries. We need to be involved in Hope House. We need to be involved in program living. We need to be involved in Hotel Inc. and in the sex trafficking trade that is rampant throughout the world but is often not talked to and lives in the shadows. We need to be involved in those things, not simply as individuals, but also as church, as a community, but not only as a community, but also as individuals. This calling is for all of us as believers in Jesus. Tim Keller says this in his book, Gospel in Life. Get this. A merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. I worked hard to get here. This sounds like Americans. I worked hard to get here where I am, and so can everyone else. That is the language of the moralist heart. I am only here excuse me, I am only where I am by sheer unmerited mercy of God. I am completely equal with all other people. That is the language of the Christian's heart. A sensitive social conscience with a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of God's grace. So begs the question, are you religious or are you Christian? The third thing this morning, mercy leads to forgiveness. Quickly, if you looked in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, you got this guy named Joseph. And, and Joseph, by all accounts, let's, he was kind of annoying there at the beginning. All right, he's the youngest guy. His daddy gives him like, I don't know, a really flamboyant coat all of a sudden because he's the favorite. He goes to his brothers and he said, hey guys, what, guess what? I'm going to have, I had a dream last night and all of you worshiped me. Wasn't that cool? All right. He doesn't have calloused hands. He's like a mama's boy. He's like lotioning them up, you know. I mean, he probably smells like peaches in the middle of the desert. This, this is Joseph. His brothers get upset. What do they do? They take him and they essentially throw him in a pit, leave him for dead, fake his death, kill an animal, place the blood upon his pretty little coat, send it back to Pop, and tell him that his son is dead. Lo and behold, some, they actually traded him off. He becomes all of this crazy story, if you read that in the book of Genesis. Well, at the end of the story, by God's sovereign plan, this guy Joseph has gone from being in a pit, left for dead, sold into slavery, been to prison multiple times, is now second in command of all of Egypt. And there's a famine in the land. And lo and behold, by God's grace, they had been told through Joseph to save food and resources. And the famine happened and people began to starve to death. Started coming to Egypt because they knew that they had the resources. And Joseph was the one that kind of got to delegate who got what and where it went. And his brothers show up and they don't recognize him. Joseph essentially has every right to punish those dudes, those men, his brothers. And yet, what does he do? He forgives them, then feeds them for the rest of their lives. See, mercy always leads to forgiveness. Seeing people, hearts are compelled when they 
When, they, when we see someone sin, when someone speaks bad of you, you are compelled because you realize they are in great misery due to their sin, which leads them to be quick or leads us to be quick to forgive. So when someone speaks against you, they're essentially doing that because it's the misery and pain of their sin. What mercy allows us to do is to forgive those people. We're a culture who loves justice. We love unforgiveness. And God is a God of justice, and there, there is no doubt about that. We don't have time to kind of work through all of those, the depths of that whole paradox there. But we are a culture in and of ourselves. I mean, just think about how many television shows are about justice. If you're a Netflix junkies like we are, making of a murderer. I mean, consumed our society for a few months, and people are still all enamored with that story, that true story, and, and wondering, did this guy do it or he didn't do it or if he's being punished wrongly? I mean, we, we love this idea of justice. And I'm not saying that all justice is bad, but that God calls us to be a people of mercy. In James chapter 2, verse 12 through 14, it says this, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What a powerful verse. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. So what is Jesus saying here through James, the writer? If you're about judgment, it comes to those who are not merciful. Believers don't reign in judgment, but find triumph in mercy. Jesus is saying, man, love your enemies. And when you love your enemies, you will forgive them. Number four, mercy changes who you eat with. Jesus is constantly found in the scriptures eating with who? Those whom he has the right to punish, but doesn't. And those who are in misery because of their, their poverty or in their social status or whatever, but they've been separated from society. They are the outcasts. And yet, what do we see Jesus constantly doing? Who is he constantly with? He is constantly with the tax collectors, the poor, the oppressed, the prostitutes. Those are the people who Jesus is eating with. What does the establishment say? The establishment says, stay away from those people. They even accuse Jesus of, 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 of being a whoremonger and a glutton because of these people whom he ate with and yet we see this over and over and over and over and over again mercy changes who you eat with and in eating during biblical times means you accepted that person they were welcome at your table that was a big deal so for instance, let's just say this morning that you were to walk into Jesus' castle. There's no hassle at the castle. Greatest breakfast ever. And, and saw Jesus sitting with President Obama or the presidential candidate that you cannot stand. Or a porn star or a, a homosexual or child molester or an abusive parent. Maybe a foreign refugee, maybe a radical Muslim, or more simply, maybe it's just the, the bully that used to pick on you in elementary school. What if you were to walk into that, that place and, and see Jesus eating with those people? Would Jesus be showing them mercy, not that he would not be speaking truths into situations, but would he also simultaneously be showing them mercy and compassion, or would he sound like the rhetoric of, of the local news stations or what people blast on on Facebook or Twitter and claim to be followers of Jesus? See, it's cool to talk about mercy until Jesus starts getting to our stuff. 
And what, what would Jesus say to, to the, the leader of ISIS? How would he respond to those people? It's tough when we try to, when we try to dictate what the scripture says instead of living out what the scripture says to live. It changes and must change every attitude and motive of our hearts. And it's the calling for every one of us who claim to be followers of Jesus. Why is it so important? The fifth thing and the last thing. And the most important thing. We're to be merciful because Jesus is mercy. Jesus is mercy. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, so we are the, the ones who are worthy of punishment, we are the ones who are, are poor. We are the ones who are miserable because of our sins. Dead in our trespasses made us to lie, alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God, rich in mercy. This is lavish. It doesn't make sense. Your neighbors, your family members, maybe even church uh, family members should be looking at you because you are being so merciful and going, man, that is, that is weird. That is strange. I would not be doing that. That's the kind of mercy that we see here because that is the kind of mercy that has been bestowed upon us because Jesus is mercy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is the truth of the gospel. Because Jesus is mercy. He, he oozes it. He lives it. He has compassionate. We are, are the man on the side of the road that has been stripped and robbed. And Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus is the one that comes and takes care of us and, and watches over us. I love that definition when we're talking about mercy being getting into the skin of those who are hurting and oppressed and who can't even help themselves. And what do we see in the person and work of Jesus? God, who is with God, and, is, and Jesus in the Trinity is, is watching this take place as it unfolds his redemptive plan. And eventually, what does Jesus do? He is merciful to the point where he gets into human flesh and skin and he dwells among the poor and the oppressed, the very ones that he should cast into hell immediately from birth. And yet what does he do? He becomes, he gets into our flesh, he feels our pain, he knows what it's like to step on a rock, to stub your toe, to be tempted in every way. Why? Because he's getting, he's being merciful, he's getting into, he felt. Let's not take away from the divinity of God, but also let's not make him so divine in his flesh that he was without any emotion or pain or, or any of those sorts of things. Because I think the scripture alludes that, man, he, he felt it all. Why? Because he is merciful. And we are the ones that need to be shown mercy. Jesus hanging on the cross, what does he do? He looks at them and he can punish them. And he doesn't, and yet he says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Mercy is not an option for us. Mercy is a core value of what it means to follow Jesus. Being merciful is not just for some, but it's for every one of us. So who's in your home? Who's in our community of faith? What enemy do you now welcome into your life? What poor man, poor woman, what, what person of a different nationality? Let's put it home. What Syrian refugee will you welcome into your life? Will we welcome into our lives? 
We don't have an option for this. This is not, again, some say, well, I'm not called to be merciful. You're not following the scripture. Every one of us are called. This is a natural byproduct. It is the attribute that swells of force. We cannot help but do it. But why? We are merciful because we have been shown great mercy. When we begin to realize who God is and who we are and what God has done. We can't help but live this way as individuals, but also as a community of faith. May Mission Church be a place that truly does not just put on a marquee that we are for all people, but that it truly believes the gospel is for all and this community is for all. Show mercy, this Matthew 5, 7. Here's, break it down. You've been shown mercy, show mercy, and you'll be shown more mercy. Get that? You've been shown mercy, great mercy. So show mercy. And in showing mercy, guess what's gonna happen? You're gonna see even more mercy. I close with this, this morning, or this week, I think Pastor Justin kind of hit the, the, sent it out this week and several other people did it as well it's just so good I can't tell you how many times I've watched it now but there's a a pastor speaker um if you need some resources man I'd love to hook you up with this guy his name's R.C. Sproul when I first became a Christian one of the the first books I read about uh sovereign grace um was by R.C. Sproul and continue to listen to him but he was at a, a recent conference and it was filled with Christians and they were able to like ask questions and they asked this question about um, Dr. Sproul or to these other pastors, you know, why, why is it that um, Adam's sin was so harsh and so like everlasting and so, so bad? Why was God's punishment upon humanity is what he was essentially saying. Why was it, why was it so bad? Why was it so severe? And, and R.C. Sproul has gotten older and he's had some health issues and, and there's all these like younger pastors and I don't even think it was his turn probably to answer and he kind of like speaks up and he's like, huh, didn't we just have that same question? And I, I've never seen him respond to anything like what he does sitting on this panel. But I want to read it to you. He said, I don't, I don't really get, essentially, why are we getting this question? He said, you've got a creature whom God made from the dirt. And he defiles the most holy God. After creating Adam, he, he told him not to eat of this particular fruit on this certain tree. For when you do you will surely die. There's all these other trees. Just don't eat that one. What does Adam do? He, he eats that one. For if you do, you will certainly die. You will surely die. Adam, Eve, eat of the truth. And instead of dying on that day, he lived another day. And essentially he was saying, and another one, and another one, and another one, because Adam lived to be really old. And on that next day, what, is, what does God do to this man who has defiled him? He, he gives him clothes by pure grace. And what are the consequences of this? He curses them, women, childbirth, laboring in that. Man will work for the sweat of his brow. But he says the worst, the one that didn't even sin in that moment was the serpent. And, and the serpent is the one who, who is the one that gets the most severe of the curses. He punishes not Adam and Eve the most. He, he punishes the one who seduces him. And what does he say? There will be one that will crush the head of of the serpent by the seed of that woman. We consider this to be the first gospel message in the scripture 
as it's already pointing towards Jesus. Because he is the one who will crush or has crushed the enemy's head. So he says that and he says to the crowd, and you say the punishment was too severe? And about that time, R.C. Sproul, oldest man on this panel, gets red-faced holding this microphone and he says, what's wrong with you people? And the crowd erupts in laughter. And he says, oh, I'm being serious. Hush. He said, that is what is wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. See, ladies and gentlemen, when you truly understand that God has been merciful to you, when you understand the lavishness and the the eternal amount of not just grace, but mercy, that he is withholding punishment, he has every right to smite us dead at any moment, even common grace, that he gives, you know, sun and the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and yet we are all undeserving of being withheld from his divine wrath. He withholds that. He looks upon us. He shows us mercy. He, he gives us grace, which is something we do not deserve. He lavishes that upon us, but he also withholds something. And when you begin to understand, and that's why we at Mission want to, to paint a broad biblical stance on who God is, that we truly behold the Lamb of God, that every day of our lives he gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And when you compare who you are and what he has done in your life, you can't help but ooze and be merciful to other people because you have been shown great mercy. And every time we don't, it's because we've forgotten who he is. And who we are. Because you know what? You're that Syrian refugee. You're spoons. Okay? You deserve capital punishment. In some ways, we're the prostitute. We're the abuser. We're the neglecter of the way. And yet God, through Jesus, what's he do? Is God just? Yes. And he pours out every bit, every job of divine justice, not on us, his children, but on his son. And we reap the benefits. So the question is, what other way of life is there to live than to be this way for God's glory and for the good of those around us? Let us be faithful to him. Let us be welcoming to others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, this morning. And God, as we turn our attention to the screen to kind of help us to wrap this all together and then to sing, Lord, I pray, God, that that you would be most glorified in this. Lord, that we would only speak truth, 